Uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 tonight. It's been a couple of weeks since we've actually been in the study because we had uh, Father's Day and then the baptisms last week and all of that. But back into chapter 3 of um, 1 Kings, following the history of the nation of Israel. We were kind of joking around. If, if you're not familiar with Sunday night, there's a rotation of teachers and we always kind of compare, hey, what chapter did you get? What chapter did you get? And I always get these sweet chapters. And Steve's like, dang, I want your chapter, but you can't have it. It's mine. So Exodus, excuse me, sorry, force of habit. First Kings chapter 3. Let me pray once more, and then we're going to jump in and, and uh, explore this awesome chapter. So Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word, and that we get to be here to fellowship and take it in and Lord, would you speak to us? Would you, would you just allow your spirit to take the truth of your word and take it off paper and put it into this, the fleshy tablets of our heart, Lord? And that's what we desire. So, Lord, be glorified in your name. Amen. Amen. So, chapter 3, let me just kind of bring us back up to speed just a little bit because if you've been tracking with us, like I said, it's been a couple of weeks, but if you're not you know, haven't been in Kings or Samuel for a while. Um, here's what's going on. King David has passed on. As hard as that is, we all love King David. But in the story, he's passed away. And at this point in their history, Solomon, his son, has taken the reins of power. And it wasn't like a, a super smooth transition because one of other, David's other sons, Adonijah, was kind of trying to drop in on him and get the kind of usurp the the throne, and so there's been this tumultuous beginning, and Solomon had to deal with him, and he had to deal with the priest, and then he had to deal with Joab, and then he had to deal with this guy Shammai, and after that's all said and done, um, look what it says at the end of chapter 2, the last sentence. It says, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. How many of you guys, it's in some way you've read about Solomon, you've gone through the history books, you have some exposure to Solomon? Some of us, maybe half of us. So here's the thing, Solomon's, a, you, you gotta love the story of Solomon. He's, an, he's just kind of this enigma in that, on one hand he's this awesome example of, of what to do, but on the other hand he's this awesome example of what not to do. He's this guy that unfortunately joins the ranks of many throughout the corridors of history that starts really, really well, but kind of finishes in a tailspin. And if you don't know anything about Solomon, know this, and this is what we're going to get at. He was not only the richest, most powerful, all that stuff, he was the wisest man, save Jesus, that ever lived. The wisest man that ever lived. And that's kind of what we're going to see tonight, how he got his wisdom. And so I'm excited to just to get into the life of Solomon a little bit. But let's look at this. I already mentioned in verse, excuse me, the last verse of chapter 2, that the kingdom has been established uh, in the hand of Solomon. But let's, let's get some more details because this sets the stage for this whole thing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and he brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Verse 2, the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house, uh, excuse me, however, because no house had yet been built uh, for the name of the Lord. Verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord 
walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Verse 4. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For there, excuse me, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings at that altar, on that altar. So a lot of information up front. Here's the thing that is really interesting. We see two things here. Two things that are brought to our attention right off the giddy. Number one, as the, the kingdom is being established, Solomon does something that was absolutely, totally acceptable in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of, of just common sense and running a kingdom. What's, what's he do? One of his first moves is he makes a marriage alliance with the king of Egypt or the pharaoh. Now that's interesting. What that was, was a, well it's just like what it says. If a nation wanted to have peace with another nation, one way to really secure that is marry the king's daughter. Because what king wants to invade the country where his daughter lives? Does that make sense? So it was like this total political move where he says, look, I want to have good relationship with Egypt. So Pharaoh, I'm going to marry your daughter. He brings her in. And um, I'm going to talk more about that in a second. But notice this. He brings her in to his own house there in the city of David. By the way, little, little pause button here. You're going to read that phrase from time to time in the Old Testament, the city of David. And a lot of times we equate that to the Jerusalem that we know and love right now with the massive wall around it and all of that. You have to understand that's not the city of David. The city of David is on that hill. If you're looking at the temple and you went south, there's this tiny little city with a wall around it. That was the city of David. It's later that they expand the wall and expand the city to include the Temple Mount and all the rest. I only say that to say is that in the last few years, if you've had the chance to go to Israel, they've done some amazing uh, digs and discovered the city of David the way it was. And it's from the city of David. You can go down into Hezekiah's tunnel and walk out to the Pool of Siloam. It's an amazing thing. I think we need to begin to pressure Pastor Steve to put together an Israel trip. So anyway... That's just my anointed opinion. <laughs> so anyway, he's, he takes her to the city of David. Now, kind of just, I know that maybe creates some questions in your mind about the whole marriage alliance thing, but just, just hold on to that for a second. The second thing that, that, that Solomon does, if I call him David, forgive me, it's just kind of force of habit at this point. The second thing that, that Solomon does is he not only makes a marriage alliance with the, the king of Egypt, marrying his daughter, bringing him into the city, but the second thing that's noted here in a couple of different ways is that the people and Solomon personally were sacrificing on where? What does it say? The high places. How many of you guys have read that term? You're going through the Old Testament and the prophets and the history. You keep running, come across that term. The high places, the high places, the high places. What in the world are the high places? So the high places basically are this. Before the children of Israel came into the land of promise, the Canaanite inhabitants of the land, the, the pagan culture of the day, would sacrifice to their false gods on all of the hills. If you've been to Israel, another plug, um, it looks a lot like Southern California. There's a lot of hills and, and things like that. And they would find these hilltops, and that's where they would kind of set up an altar for their regional god, whatever it may be, and they would sacrifice in that way. Now, when it says the people of Israel at this stage in the game are sacrificing on the high places, probably not sacrificing to all, 
to idols necessarily. They're sacrificing to the Lord. When it says that, that um, Solomon was sacrificing at the high places, it wasn't that he was sacrificing to idols. He was worshiping Jehovah. He was worshiping Yahweh. He was doing it at a high place. Does that make sense? Now, here's the thing. Two things that we just mentioned. Number one, he did a marriage alliance with the king of Pharaoh. And number two, he's worshiping God in the high places. Guys, right off the bat, you know what we learn about Solomon? He's not doing everything right. <laughs> Do you guys understand that, that, that the marriage alliance may have been something that was totally kosher? Well, that's the wrong choice of words. Totally okay with the world's way of thinking and the common thinking of the day. But how backwards was it for a king of Israel to be making a marriage alliance with the king of, Pharaoh, of Egypt, the Pharaoh, given their history for one? And then secondly, man, God did not want them multiplying wives in that way. And so there's kind of these prohibitions going to be put in place that, in, in the law that were like, no, you're not supposed to do that. But he does it. Interesting. And he's sacrificing on high places. Deuteronomy um, chapter 11, no, chapter 12, verse 13, among a score of other scriptures, is very specific. Don't sacrifice on the high places. This is my point, and I don't mean to make it too big of a point. It's more of an observation, is that it's fascinating to me that one of the greatest kings that ever lived, right off the get-go, we read these two things that he's kind of compromising on, not kind of, is compromising on, the marriage deal, the worship on the high places deal. Those are not in line with God's perfect plan or his best. But look at verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord walking in all the statues of his father, David. Here's my observation, and maybe it's so simple it doesn't need to be mentioned, but sometimes the simple ones are the best, yeah? Solomon didn't have his life altogether, but guess what? He still loved the Lord. Amen? And God commends him on it. How many of you guys have found out that you can love God and still not have it altogether? <laughs> now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not making a case for willful disobedience or neglect or those things. You get the sense that Solomon's doing the best he can. And is he, is he hitting the mark perfectly? No. Again, I'm not saying that it's okay to miss the mark, it's okay to sin, or again, make a case for those things. But I guess I'm just making the case or an observation of God's grace. I'm so thankful for the times in my life where I've been walking with the Lord and I love Him and then... Years down the road, he shows me something I've been doing all along that's not quite right and it isn't his best, and he didn't jam me up on it right away. He was so gracious to bring it to my attention and then deal with it, but he didn't like pin me down like, no, you're not doing everything perfectly okay. How many of you guys know we need to give each other a lot of grace because we all haven't arrived yet, amen? And it's, it's possible to love the Lord very much and still not have it all together. Again, that doesn't mean we don't grow. doesn't mean we don't strive for the best. But I just love this. Because you could just say, well, Solomon's an idiot. Whoa, wait, wait a minute. says he loves God. And God even says, and you know what? Save the, you know, the marriage thing maybe and that sacrificing on the high places. He was walking in my ways. He's walking in my ways. I just love the patience. How many of you guys love the patience of God? The patience of God. I love it. Well, Solomon does love the Lord. By the way, did you notice, and this is going to be where this whole scene happens, 
it says that he used to go to the great high place, kind of the, the grand poopah of the high places in Gibeon, and he sacrificed there. By the way, First Chronicles would elude, or at least even actually more than elude, um, actually Second Chronicles 12.3 if you're taking notes. Evidently at this point in history, the tabernacle, if that rings a bell, we're about to study it this Wednesday night, about the tabernacle that Moses had built when he came off the, the mountain with God. Evidently, the tabernacle had been set up at Gibeon, and they kind of turned that into like the high place of, of all high places at this point in their history, right? So that's where he goes. And check out this sacrifice. He did nothing halfway. It's what I love about Solomon. Uh, right or wrong, he did nothing halfway. It said, for uh, Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. A, th a thousand animals. That translates into a ton of, that is a big sacrifice. By the way, they were burnt offerings. Just a little side note for you guys who like this stuff. Check out Leviticus. The burnt offering was a voluntary sacrifice that was connotating or expressing total consecration to the Lord. M most of the other sacrifices, you would give part of it to God. You would keep part of it back and eat it like a barbecue. This one was, no, I'm not keeping anything. The whole thing's going up on the altar. I'm giving it all to you. And by doing that, you were communicating just like that animal's burning up and every bit of it's dedicated to you. That's my life, Lord. I want to give all my life to you, which is, by the way, what Jesus was. He gave all of his life for us, and it's only reasonable that we give all of our lives to him, Romans 12, 1. Well, let's keep going. So he's doing this. It seems like it was kind of a pattern uh, for Solomon. So Nothing out of the ordinary for him, but this is a very special day because check out verse 6, or verse 5, excuse me. In Gibe at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you and you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and you've given him a son referring to himself obviously to sit on his throne this day and now O lord my god you've made your servant king in the place of your of my of david my father although i'm but a little child i do not know how to go in or come out and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for the multitude. So we'll pause there for a minute. He's, he's there at Gibeon. He has this dream, and God comes to him in this dream. And, and listen how simple this is. God says to him in a dream, ask me what you want me to give you. I'm sorry, but do you guys ever kind of envision like the genie popping out of the bo bottle at this point? Like, poof, you know, they just redid Aladdin, by the way. Anybody seen it yet? Okay, just curious how the ratings work. Anyways, don't get that picture in, in your mind, but, but God does come to him and he says, Solomon, what do you want me to give you? Blank check. Whoa. Now pause for a second. How would you, <laughs> how would you answer God? What would be the knee-jerk reaction, right? Anything? Anything. In that case. But look how Solomon responds. Number one, Solomon responded um, by acknowledging God's faithfulness and his grace. Did you guys notice that? 
he just says, he says, God, you know, let me just read a couple more lines here. He says, um, you've shown great steadfast love and, and kindness to your servant David. And he kind of rehearses this whole thing. And he just, he just, you get the sense he has this heartfelt just gratitude, and he's looking at his position, and he's looking at, at where he sits, and God's coming to him at this, and he goes, God, you've been so good to me. You've been so good to my family. You have been so faithful. How many of you guys know that God has been faithful in your life? By the way, this is a great little key when you approach God in prayer. It's always a good idea to just start with thanking God for how good he's been to you. It really just sets the dial back to zero when you're praying. Anyways, God, you've been so faithful. You've been so good. He acknowledges that. But then secondly, he acknowledges not only his gratitude, but he expresses, I believe, a genuine humility. Now, don't miss this. It's, it's going to come back later. But, but notice what he says. He says, you've made your servant king, you know, in place of, of my father, and you notice what he says. He says, this is a great people, a multiplied people, your people, your chosen people. And in essence, he's basically saying, I'm like a kid, God. I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. Have you thought about what it might mean to be taking, you know, stepping into the shoes, if you would, of David? <laughs> how ominous that would be, how, how daunting that would be. And here's Solomon, like, looking at, the nation, like the great nation, God's promised people from Abraham. The kingdom is established. David was his dad. And now, boom, he's been tapped to be king. How humbling was that? And, and he just basically says, I'm overwhelmed. Which then brings us to his request. Look at verse 9. So then he says in verse 9, So give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I might discern between good and evil, because who is able to govern this, your great people? There it is, the famous passage. Solomon says, who am I? Who am I, God? These are your great people. Who am I? You know what I need you to give me, God? An understanding heart. If you have a little footnote or a little asterisk by that, it might say a hearing heart. Anybody have that little note? It means to hear what's right, and hear what's wrong from God. And then he says a discerning heart, able to discern what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. We sum this up by just saying Solomon was asking for wisdom. That's really what wisdom is. It's not knowledge. Knowledge is an accumulation, a gathering of facts. But wisdom is the ability to rightly apply the facts that you have, right? To make good and right decisions with the facts that you have. And he says, you know what? Here's what I need from you, God. I don't know how to do this. Let me just put it in Jason translation. I don't know how to do this, God. I need your help. Give me wisdom or I can't do this. Notice with me also, two or three times, he says this, your people. I need to govern your people. I need an understanding heart for your people to govern this great people that are your people. He understood keenly. This isn't about me so much as it's about you, God. And if I'm going to bring glory to your name, if, if we're going to do this right, you have got to give me wisdom. Well, look at, look at God's response, verse 10. It pleased the Lord. The Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this, and you have not asked for yourself long life or riches for your life, or excuse me, or, or long life or riches or the life, pardon me, of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, 
Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you, there, there should be none like you. Let me reread that, excuse me. So that none like you has been before uh, you, and none like you shall arise after you. Verse 13. I give you also what you did not ask, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. And if you walk in all my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. This is awesome. In this grateful heart, in this heart of humility, Solomon says, God, you will know what I really need. I need supernatural wisdom to figure out how to do this because I can't do this. God was like, that's an awesome request, Solomon. He says he was pleased with it. And he says, and because you asked that, and you didn't ask kind of what everybody else was going to ask, like money, long life, revenge on your enemies, he goes, he goes guess what? I'm going to give you your wisdom. I'm going to throw in all the other stuff as a bonus. Now, Pastor Steve will go over, I think, next, next week. It talks about how, just how wise Solomon was, how many Proverbs he wrote, how much money he had, and all those things. It's staggering when you think about it. God absolutely did this. But the point is, for now, he grants him that, I hate to say wish, back to the Aladdin analogy, but he grants him that, 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 that request and says, yeah, you got it. You got all the wisdom you need, Solomon. Well, verse 15. Solomon woke up, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and he stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and he offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and he made a feast for all of his servants. He wakes up and it's a dream. How many of you guys have ever had a dream where you wake up and it, it takes you a few minutes to be like, was that real? Honey, did I crash the car last night? No, you're good. Okay, that was a dream. He probably wakes up and like, I don't know, if, was that real or not? And did, did he really say that to me? Did, did God really give me wisdom? But he knew it was from the Lord. He had a, this moment with God. I, I believe by faith he just was like, yeah, God spoke to me. So he goes back to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem at that time, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't with the tabernacle in Gibeon. The Ark of the Covenant was in Jerusalem in a separate tent that had been set up. And at that point he offers up more burnt offerings and then peace offerings, which were like fellowship offerings. You'd share it with your friends. You'd just half to God, half to you, just barbecue. The idea is you're eating a meal with God. It's just this rejoicing time. So that happens. Now, look at verse 16. You could sum up the first part of this. Wisdom desired, wisdom granted, and now wisdom tested. Did it take? Yeah, I had a dream, and God spoke to me, but do I really have that wisdom? I wonder if those thoughts crossed his mind. Well, he's about to get tested. Look at verse 16. Then, sometime after, we don't have a time frame, two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. And you might say, well, how did these two prostitutes in that culture not have a lot of standing? How did they get audience with the king? Well, you're about to see that it's a pretty severe case. The one woman said, oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone, and there was no one else in the house. Only we two were in the house. Now, that's actually important information to the story. So they're prostitutes. Uh, they, they both get pregnant, clearly out of any kind of wedlock. Um, they, they, it happens almost simultaneously. They get, she gives birth. 
has a son, the other lady gives birth, has a son, and she goes, and what, was it, what, what, what happened, what I'm about to tell you happened, happened when nobody else was there. It was just us. That's important. We're actually going through the law right now in Exodus, and the idea of having witnesses is hugely important, but there was no witnesses. So that, that's part of the problem here. And it says, and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. In other words, she accidentally smothers the child. Tragic. And she arose at midnight, took my son from beside me while your servant slept, and laid him at her breast, and laid her dead son at my breast. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But I looked at him closely in the morning. Behold, he was not the child that I'd born. Verse 22. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. She like burst out and she can't hold it back. And the first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. And they thus spoke before the king. First of all, that's a hard one to wrap your brain around this whole scenario. But how difficult is this? She's laying out the case, and the other woman's like, that's not what happened. You're lying. No, the living son is mine, and you know the dead son is yours. No, uh the living son is mine, and the dead son. And, and maybe this went on back and forth, and it's just heated. How uncomfortable of a situation is this? And Solomon then speaks up. Check this out. Did God give him wisdom? Well, we're about to find out. Look at verse 23. And the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive. And your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. I wonder what everybody's eyes did when he said that. Somebody get me a sword. I bet everybody was like, what? Sword? We don't need to bring a sword into this, do we? Their eyes probably got really big. Bring me a sword. And so a word was brought before, a sword, excuse me, was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child into two. Give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall neither be mine or yours. Divide him. Can you imagine that? Just pause. This is so crazy. This happened. They're in the court, and they're, you know, this is like, you know, there's officials, there's soldiers, everybody's watching. This isn't like in private. It's like a, you know, there's all kinds of people of the court there. Everybody's seeing this, and they're arguing back and forth, and their eyes are on Solomon. Man, what's he going to do with this one? He goes, uh, somebody give me a, a sword. And one of the soldiers, here he goes, sir, and he gets the sword and he goes, yeah, bring that baby in. Let's just cut him in half. We'll give half to you, half to you, problem solved. But the woman who knew that was her son says, no, 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 do not kill him. Give him to the other lady. But the other lady, it wasn't her son, was like, yeah, that's a great idea, king. Split him in two. Why should we, let's just have half and half. Well, this, this is what he says, verse 27, then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is the mother. Do you see what he did there? He, he, Solomon had no intention of killing this child. I hope you understand that. He brings out, they didn't know that. He brings out the sword. He's like, kill it. But what did it do? It exposed the heart of these two women. 
And, and guess what happened? The, the mom the, of the, the real mom of the living child ex- displayed the heart of a mom, didn't she? She was basically saying, I'd rather be denied my ability to even have that child. It would kill me. It would, it would just pain me to no end. But he'd be alive. And that's all that matters, that my son is okay. And then the other one's like, yeah, let's kill him. And Solomon knew right away, you're not the mom. You're the mom. Amen? So that was, I mean, they were like, well, let's read it. I don't, you don't have to listen to me. Look at verse 28. And all of Israel heard about this judgment, the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the, listen, the wisdom of God. I want you just to note that phrase, the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Well, that's the story. And and that's actually really important because, you know, he's now the king, but again, like I said at the beginning, it must have been very hard to step into the footsteps or the the shoes, rather, the sandals of of David. And now something has happened, a test, where he displays this incredible wisdom and the people stand in awe of him. Those who were in his presence were like, oh my gosh, did he just do that? And they were marveling, and word got out. And, you know, you know, they just, everybody's hearing about, they're reading it on Fox and CNN and everything, and they're reading about what happened. And what does it say? They perceived that the wisdom of God was with him. And then, once again, Solomon is now even more established in the eyes of the people, and he's got this amazing wisdom. So, that's the story. I love this story. It's an amazing story. Just in and of itself. I mean, it's great. We could end here. We're not going to, but we could in theory. But I do have a couple of takeaways I just want us to know. Some things that are just kind of on my heart. I'm going to mention I'm not going to like explore each one of these ones deeply, but just a couple of takeaways that I think are so good for us. Um, First of all, just on a a real general term, I, I like this. Solomon was stepping into the footsteps of his dad as the king, He was overwhelmed by that, and God provided what he needed to fulfill the calling that he had put on his life. Did you guys hear that? God supplied what Solomon needed to fulfill the calling that God had placed on Solomon's life. Um, My old pastor back in the day used to say, the best place to be in ministry is in over your head. Because when you're in, in over your head, you have to rely on the Lord and not your own abilities. And God has a track record of calling men and calling women into places of service that are far beyond their natural abilities, far beyond their skill. Why? So that they have to look to Him to be the one to give them the grace to do what God has called them to do. But guys, there's so much comfort in that. Listen, if God has called you to do something, He'll give you what you need to do it. Amen? There's this old cliche saying that floats around, but it's good, it's right. God does not call the qualified so much as he qualifies the called. And I love that. There can be such excitement when God calls you in to do some service for him, but there can also be this immediate unawareness of your insufficiency. And that's okay because it's supposed to drive you to him to let him fulfill, give the grace that you need to do the work he's called you to. Amen? God's not going to call you to do something and not give you the grace to do it. Specifically in this case, it was wisdom. Now let me just let me just say this. My second and last point, but it has like twenty-seven sub points. Just kidding, but a couple. What really popped for me when I read this this time through was Solomon's, I believe, genuine and humble 
acknowledgement that he did not have what it took to be king. I, I don't think it's fake. I don't think he was like, uh, you know, trying to fool God or, you know, putting on a front. I, I think he was genuine. He's saying, God, in a, you know, we read it. I won't read it again. But in essence, like, who am I, God? These are your people. I'm not, I'm no David. What you've called me to do is far too great for me. I need wisdom. Listen, we need wisdom in this life. Amen? Because we are being asked, and this ties into the first point I just made, but we are asked to do things in this life that we don't have the wisdom to, to do. You know, I, I think about when I became a dad. Well, I think about when I became a husband at 20 years old. Just celebrated 26 years last month. Or this month, yeah. Praise the Lord. That's it? Okay, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it's a blessing, but 26 years. But I can remember, when you get married at 20 years old, you know, you, I think we can handle this, no big deal. Then you're like, oh, I'm married, like forever to her and her to me. And it's like, how do you do marriage? And it's, oh, my gosh, I need wisdom. Then you have kids. I will confess to you that being a dad, for me, hands down, the hardest, greatest, most humbling at times discouraging. When I was a young dad, I was a mess. I was quickly well aware of the fact that I did not know what I was doing and I was in way over my head. And whether you're a husband or, or a wife or a dad or a mom or a son or a daughter or a boss or an employee or a teacher or a pastor or a worship leader or the list goes on in whatever station you might be in life, whatever relationship you're trying to navigate, we need the wisdom of God if we're going to do this thing right. Amen? You know what wisdom is, just simply put? I kind of, so, kind of mentioned what it was before, the idea of, of wisdom, but another way to define it um, and this comes from both the Hebrew root word and the Greek new, uh, root word. It carries the idea of skill. I like that. Skill. What do you mean skill? Skill for life. Right? Skill for life. And, and what, what we are, what, what wisdom, excuse me, back up. What Solomon received was the skill, if you would, from God to do what God had called them to do. And if you're a dad, wife, husband, all those things that we rattled off, you need God's skill, God's wisdom to help you navigate those areas of life. How many of you guys would say amen to that? I need God's skill, God's wisdom. Now let me pause and add this, and if you're note-taking, you might jot down um, James chapter 3, and I'm just going to reference it just for time's sake. But James talks about, in chapter 3, I believe it is, that there's two sources of wisdom. There's earthly wisdom that is actually demonic, and there's wisdom from above. And that's important to di differentiate between because what the world around us says is wisdom is very often counter to what God's wisdom says. And what God's wisdom says is very often different than how the world perceives wisdom. Does that make sense? in the way you run business, in the way you run a relationship, in the way you run whatever. 
God's economy and the world's economy are very different. The tragedy is when as believers we're taking our cues from the world instead of from God's word and getting God's wisdom in all of our situations. Amen? And let me just say this quickly before I get into these solid points I want to make is that if you're in a position where you need wisdom specifically, be very careful who you're going to to get your wisdom. If you're getting counsel, don't just go to somebody that at work or whatever that they're not a believer, but they have some street smarts. And they, What would you do in this situation? Listen, it's my personal conviction. You need to go to someone who will not necessarily tell you what you want to hear, but will tell you the truth according to God's word. Amen? There's, there's always going to be somebody that will agree with you. There's always going to be someone that will just tell you what you want to hear. And people do that. They go from counselor to pastor to church to just get told what they want to hear so they can continue in the way that they want to live. But it's the wise man and the wise woman that says, no, I want godly wisdom. So whether I like it or not, would you give me that kind of wisdom? Right? So there's a diff we have to differentiate, and I'll just point you to James 3 to look out later, that there's a difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. What we're after, I hope, in the church, in marriage, in counseling, and pastoring, and jobbing, and whatever we're doing, we want God's wisdom. Amen? Can we agree on that? So, so here's the thing. I confess, I've read this story many times, and I thought to myself, dang, Lord, I wish you'd just come to me in a dream like that. Solomon had it so good, but can I suggest something? We might actually have more access to God's wisdom even than Solomon. Uh, we're not Solomon's. That was a very unique and supernatural and specific thing that God did in Solomon not to be re repeated. But guys, we don't necessarily need God to come to us in a dream because we have all kinds of access to the wisdom of God. I'm going to give you four things. Number one, and some of these are tucked into the story. Number one, to really have the wisdom of God, it starts with, number one, jot it down, the fear of God. Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. Real wisdom, godly wisdom, starts with a healthy fear of of God. And again, when we say fear, it doesn't necessarily mean like a terror of God, although it could incorporate that. But the idea is a deep, holy reverence. I like to think of it this way. I care more about what God thinks than what anybody else thinks. What matters to me most of all, the, what, what steers my life is what God says is right and what God says is wrong. Scrap worldly wisdom, scrap my emotions. Is it what God says is right? Because at the end of the day, I've got to stand before this holy God. Does that make sense? If you've got a healthy fear of God in your heart, that's the beginning. Of, that's, a, that's the starting point for wisdom. Because from that point, you can actually get some really good wisdom, whether it's in general or your specific circumstance. Again, you can di dig into each one of these points as much as you want. I'm more or less just going to touch on them. Secondly, and probably one of the biggest ones, is the Word of God. The Word of God. Um, we have illustrated for us in this story a beautiful example. You see, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, this is a familiar verse, but be careful of familiarity. Read it with me. Hebrews 4, 12 says this. If I can get there. It says this. 
the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning, listen, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The author of Hebrews likens the word of God to a sharp sword that divides between soul and spirit. I mean, how do you divide between soul and spirit and bone and marrow? He says the word of God has this way of piercing in and dividing and exposing the intentions of the very heart. Isn't that exactly what happened in our story? When Solomon brings out a physical sword, and as soon as that sword came out, they were like, they just exposed where their heart really was. Save the child. Kill the child. Okay, that's the mom. The sword had a way of exposing the heart, of getting down to the root issue. And I'm telling you guys, when we need wisdom, we need to go to our sword. We need to go to the Word of God. Amen? I'll tell you, in counseling between husbands and wives and other issues, you find out really quick where a person is at when you say, you've come to me with your issue. This is what it says. This is what it is. This is what God's Word says. And this is now your course of action based on God's Word. You'll find out where they are really quick whether they're interested in following God's plan or whether they're not. It discerns. But secondly, another passage to write down is Psalm 19. Excuse me, Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. I'm just giving a couple of these, but where does wisdom come from? God's Word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, but listen to what it says in Psalm 119. Verse 98, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than my teachers because of your testimonies are my meditation. I'll tell you what, if you're grounded in the word of God and the truth of God's word, you can go to school, you can go to university, and in many ways, you will be smarter than your professors in some ways. When they tell you that we evolved out of goo, out of a cosmic blast that happened out in the middle of nowhere, and you're like, actually, no. God says that we were created, and this is how it plays. You understand? You'll have more understanding, more wisdom. You'll have a handle on origins and things like that that people are philosophizing about and hypothesizing about, and you'll be able to say, man, I, have, I understand because God's Word says. I'm not saying you should be arrogant towards your professors. You should be respectful, but you'll have more understanding in some ways. He says, I have more understanding than the aged because I keep your precepts. Oh, there's a sermon in each one of these. I hold back my feet from evil. Why? Why? Because I keep your word. It's a deterrent from evil. I don't turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter, uh, to hun- sweeter than honey in my mouth. And it goes on, but you get the point. You need godly wisdom in general, specifically, in your marriage, in rearing up children, Chuck all the worldly books on parenting and go to the Bible. (laughs) Go to the Word of God. Take it at face value. Believe it to be true. And guys, you and I have access to it any time we want. By By the way, this is why it's so important to have a regular input of God's Word into your life. This is why it's just a lifelong thing of just taking in God's Word because it's feeding our souls, teaching us, teaching us, teaching us. So we could go on and on, and you know me, I, I, I would, but I'm not going to. Number one, it starts with the fear of God, Proverbs 9, verse 10. Secondly, how do we have godly wisdom? Wisdom, The Word of God. Thirdly, prayer to God. And, and again, I'll just read from James chapter 1. This is James chapter 1, verse 5. He says this, 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to everyone without reproach. He doesn't, like, shame you about it. And he'll, it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea being tossed and driven uh, by the wind. The person that uh, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded man and stable in all of his ways. Guys, do we get that verse? That is one of the most incredible promises in the Bible. James, by the Holy Spirit, says, If you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you. Generously. But there's a stipulation. You have to ask with what? What do you have to ask with? Faith. Believe that. In other words, you're up against a decision you've got to make. You need wisdom. You've drawn the line down the paper. You've done the pros and cons. Blah, blah, blah. You've done all that. But you're like, God, I need wisdom. What do you do? You say, Father, I don't know what to do in this situation. Will you give me wisdom? And I would say, after you pray that, stop and listen and maybe have your pen handy. He may, right in the moment, give you the idea of what to do right then and there. He may not in the moment, but you walk away from that prayer time and you say, Lord, I don't have it yet, but I know you're going to give me wisdom because your promise is that you will. Amen? Crazy thing. We can ask for wisdom. Paul, read, read his prayers. I have them written down. We're not going to go through them, but Ephesians 1, Colossians 1. He's constantly praying for wisdom, praying for the church that we would have wisdom. So the idea is ask God and pray. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Word of God is a source of wisdom. Prayer, we can ask God for wisdom. Lastly, and I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but for tonight, lastly, the Holy Spirit... Listen, the Holy Spirit is capable of giving us wisdom in the very moment that we need it. I want to reference on that one 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. This morning, Pastor Steve talked about being baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon us. 1 Corinthians 12 is, we usually call it the gifts of the Spirit. More likely, it should be called the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. One of the manifestations, and the difference is um, the gifts of Romans 12 are something that are in us. They're part of our personality that God has given us. The manifestations of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, any believer at any time can be used by God to have a spontaneous manifestation of his spirit. One of those is a word of wisdom. That means you can bump up against another Christian and they can say, you know, you know, you, you could talk, I don't know what to do about this, and he could just say, or she could say, you know, I feel like the Lord would just have you do this, and you go, boom, that's it. That is exactly the wisdom that I needed. I remember when I was early on in the ministry back in Oregon, I, said, I, I can see it in my mind. I was at um, Duger's eating lunch. It's a seafood place. And I was, had this question about ministry stuff that I was up against. I don't remember what it was. I'm sitting across from a table from a guy I respected, been in the ministry way longer than me. And I'm like, should we do this or do this? And he goes, why don't you just do this? And I can't explain it, but in the moment, I just knew that was the Holy Spirit. I, that was exactly what needed to happen. I knew that was the wisdom I needed in the moment. Amen? Don't lose me here. I'm almost done, but listen. We need to be open, I believe, to the Holy Spirit using us whenever we gather in that kind of way. To just say, not, not in a way where your eyes roll back your head and you go, thus saith the Lord, and you kick into old English, whatever. But just sensitive, because the Holy Spirit might, 
through you give a word of wisdom to somebody else in the body. The gifts, the manifestations of the Spirit are intended for the building up of the body of Christ. And so that's why, and this is, this is kind of the side point, that's why it's so vital to gather whenever you can and not miss out on the gathering of the body of Christ because you don't know. The pastor could be preaching. It's on a different subject. The Holy Spirit says something through him that is exactly the wisdom you needed for your circumstance. And were you not there, you wouldn't have heard it. You're in the lobby after church. You're talking. You're praying. And the Holy Spirit through your sister in the Lord says something like, that's it. That's the word of wisdom I needed. You can't experience that unless you're with the body of Christ, unless you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, unless, well, you could receive it if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, but you really can't give those things out unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So important that we're just open to those words from the Spirit through the body to the body. Amen? Guys, all that to say is this, and we're done. I don't know how you live life, but this guy, man, I need wisdom daily. How to be a dad, how to be a husband, how to be a dad again, you know, how to pastor, how to work, how to supervise, how to, you know, fill in your life. I don't know about, do you guys ever feel this way, like overwhelmed? I don't know what to do. I need wisdom. What do I do with my daughter? What do I do with my son? They're going through this. My friend has come to me for counsel. I don't know what to do. This marriage wants to talk to my wife and I about the problems they're going through in their marriage. Well, what are we going to say? Listen, we need, we need not just wisdom. We need the wisdom of God. And guys, it starts with the fear of God. We have it in the word of God. We can ask God, and it can be spontaneously given to us by the gifts of the Spirit. And, and, and all that to say is we don't need necessarily... If God comes in a dream, sweet. I'm all for that. But don't think that just because he doesn't, we don't have access to his wisdom. We do. Amen? Now, I'll end on this. Do you need wisdom tonight? I mean, we all need wisdom. But there's something tonight that you're facing where you say, no, I, you don't understand. I need to know what to do. I don't know what to do with this issue. Why don't we just ask God right now? It, we just read it. God said, if you ask me and you believe, I'll give it to you. Is God's word true or not? It is. So I don't know what it is you need wisdom for, but why don't we just bow our heads right now and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, first of all, for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that you give us, that you have given us, that you continue to give us. Um, Lord, we, we agree and we say amen to these things, but right now, I just want to pray for anyone in here right now. And maybe if it's you, maybe just lift your heart to the Lord with your hand and just kind of express that to him. And let's just pray. Father, I pray for any in this room right now who are faced with a situation or thrust into a circumstance where they would just humbly say, I don't know what to do. I need wisdom. Your word says that if we ask in faith, you'll graciously and generously give us wisdom. Would you do that right now for my brothers and my sisters, Lord? Whether you speak it to them in a moment or whether along the way or even in the moment of decision, they'll just know they've heard from you, Lord. And I pray that when it happens, they turn around and say, thank you, Lord, for the wisdom that I asked. You gave it to me. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.